Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocators.com. My guests on today's show are financial journalists Max Frumis and Sujit Indap, the co-authors of The Caesar's Palace Coup, a book detailing the bankruptcy of Caesar's Entertainment. Coming off the heels of our Private Equity Masters miniseries, this conversation dives into a private equity deal gone wrong, including some technical aspects of what it takes to emerge from a bankruptcy. We walk through the intricacies, tensions, and dynamics of the Caesars bankruptcy, whose stakeholders included Apollo, TPG, GSO, Elliott, Silverpoint, Oaktree, and Appaloosa, a literal who's who of giants in private equity and distressed investing. We then turn to applicable lessons for investors, including power dynamics, the unwritten rules of distressed investing, and the role of skill and luck. Before we get going, I wanted to let you know that we're enrolling the first cohort of Capital Allocators University, a live online course that starts on September 21st. Rahul Mudgal and I put together a course to help train investment professionals on the skills they need to succeed at the most senior levels of their organizations, but that aren't typically taught in investment curriculum. We'll be joined by an all-star cast of past guests on the show to help you learn foundational skills like time management and public speaking, and value-added ones like decision-making and networking. Hop on the website and click University in the menu to learn more. Please enjoy my conversation with Max Frumis and Sujit Indop. Mm-hmm. 
Max Sajid, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Thanks, Ted. For each of you, it'd be great, and maybe Sajid, you start, of your background to the point where you're in a position to write this book with Max. Yeah, sure. So I have a somewhat untraditional background. I'm not a trained journalist, at least academically, and I came to a career in journalism later in my career. I actually was an investment banker for many years before I made, made the switch. So I had done a traditional investment banking analyst program after college, dot-com era, a great time to be coming out of school and getting into investment banking. Did that for two years at Merrill Lynch in the San Francisco Bay Area. Thankfully, I was not a tech banker. I just watched the tech implosion around me and was actually focusing on very boring grocery store chains, which was actually a good place, A, to learn, B, to avoid the dot-com implosion. Came to the East Coast to go to business school at Wharton. Picked a good year to come out, 2006, another bull market in investment banking. I hadn't been a, an M&A specialist when I was an analyst, so I wanted to do M&A and I wanted to work at a small firm. So I was at Lazard uh, in New York for a few years. Went to a small startup boutique after that. And at some point, I, not quite midlife crisis, but maybe one third life crisis, was thinking about what else I could do with my career and things I hadn't done before and I wanted to try. And by chance, I got this chance to to the FT, uh, which is obviously a great organization to just kind of jump into. It's kind of right place, right time. And so I write a lot uh, about deals, transactions, stuff I had focused on in, in my investment banking career. I described my beat as the intersection of corporate law and corporate finance. And one of the things I started paying attention to early in my tenure was a series of interesting corporate finance happenings at a company called Caesars, which was a big leverage buyout that was staggering and stumbling, maybe in zombie mode. And the owners of that business were doing interesting things to keep value alive. And I started paying attention to it around that time, which is 2013 or 2014. How about you, Max? I am more of a traditional journalist background, even though I got my first journalism job before I had gotten any formal training. And it was, I guess, the only journalism job I could get. And it was reporting on actual trailer park finance. We called it manufactured housing. And it was in this wide array of publications known as B2B publications that focus on some type of niche area of business. Uh, and it goes out to people normally in those businesses uh, full of lots of jargon, esoteric terms, a little bit more inside baseball and rode that to a career of niche and specialized journalism, eventually going back to school at the Dill School of Journalism to get my master's in Chicago, Northwestern, and then continuing to head east from California, but wound up over here in New York with my first job out of school reporting on private equity for The Deal and The Deal magazine. From there, I honed in on the corporate debt that was the key to the private equity model and LBOs. And my career has just been the more you specialize, the more stable your career is. <laughs> and I got attention from a publication that focused specifically on all the leveraged loans and high yield bonds and pricing information in the market, and then the health of those as they trade off into the secondary and got my first job on the distressed debt beat with LCD, Leverage Commentary and Data, under Standard & Poor's. And that's where I caught the attention of a businessman who's the author of the Distressed Debt Investing blog, and he wanted to start a publication. It was very technical, specifically for the hedge funds that invested in distressed debt. After about a year of going back and forth, we launched Reorg Research in 2013 to do that. We ultimately hired bankruptcy attorneys and financial analysts and wound up being one of these go-to tools for distressed debt investing hedge funds who were following multiple corporate bankruptcies to gauge which security they were going to invest in, what the value was going to be in these different plans, among other things. And one of our claims to fame was covering all aspects of the Caesars bankruptcy, where there was multiple forums, a lot going on behind the scenes, just tons and tons of information that was filed onto the bankruptcy docket in Chicago. It required quite a lot of effort to follow all those different moving parts. That was my viewpoint, the front row for the, a lot of these fights. And after about four years at Reorg, it's a successful company. It was a startup effort. My shares invested. I wanted to do a couple other things, include maybe take a step back and write a book. Caesars was by far the best story out there. And then it was about six months after that, that somebody reached out on Twitter and said, I heard you're writing a book on Caesars. Love to talk to you about this. And that person was Sajid. To set the stage, and I'm 
really excited to walk through this story. Sajit, you mentioned you came out of grad school in 06 and went to banking. So a lot of this starts in this pre-crisis. Why don't you start walking through what the Caesars business and capital structure looked like before the financial crisis? Sure. So a big part of our story is where did this business, which was formerly known as Harrah's, come from? And why would these two private equity firms ultimately express interest and buy this company for roughly $30 billion? So Harrah's had been this sleepy regional chain founded by a guy named Bill Harrah, who started as a bingo hall in Reno in the 1930s. And by the 1990s, early 90s, it was part of kind of a conglomerate of hospitality businesses and was mostly a and also ran. And at the time, companies that were coming up in, in Las Vegas and in gaming generally were built by guys like Steve Wynn and Kirk Corian, who were these master P.T. Barnum types who had created casinos around and resorts around explosions and volcanoes. And Harrah's didn't have a trick like that. But by chance, there was this guy named Gary Loveman, who had been a PhD student at MIT in the late 80s and then became a junior professor at Harvard. He had early in his career ideas around customer loyalty and ways businesses could build loyalty amongst customer base, particularly in competitive fields. And so he started doing these executive education classes that was then the Harris company just caught the eye of the CEO at the time. And to make a long story short, he was given a chance to be an executive straight out of a, never having an office job, just being a professor at Harvard Business School to implement these ideas around customer loyalty and actually using the rich set of data that casinos collected to see what like the revealed preferences of consumers were and give them actually very targeted promotions and uh, advertising. If you will, the first big data project in this industry, which was beforehand just dominated by family operators and not particularly sophisticated people. And so Total Rewards ultimately takes off. And as it turns out, when you've got a machine like this, it's perfect for acquisitions. Uh, and so Harris at the time starts buying up chains in casinos across America and creating this hub and spoke system where Visitors in regional casinos can uh, earn points and they can take those points to Las Vegas and the company knows exactly whether a customer wants a free steak or a free buffet or a free round of golf or gaming credits. And it creates this incredible engine, which turns into this acquisition machine. And so if we get to now the mid 2000s, Gary Loveman is the CEO of the company. The company's growing like crazy. It's mostly going well, but they're frustrated that the business itself isn't quite getting the valuation that a traditional hospitality company We'll get. And at the same time, in the financial world or in Wall Street, you've got this industry private equity, which is coming into its own as a major player, not just for small broken companies, which was its heritage, but rather these funds like Blackstone and TPG and Carlyle and Apollo and KKR can raise $10 billion funds and they can pool their money and they're starting to take on the biggest companies in America. So those are like Toys R Us and Altel and Clear Channel. And ultimately, they come knocking uh, on Gary Levin's door, two of them, TPG led by David Bonderman and Apollo led by Leon Black and his colleague, Mark Rowan, who's an up and coming star at the firm. And so they had a very simple idea. And this is, I think, one of the interesting parts of the story uh, of Caesars is that, again, the typical LBO is a, was of a company that was uh, undervalued or broken and needed some kind of operational help or some kind of effort to whip it into shape. Whereas with these big LBOs that were coming into play at the time, $10 billion, $20, $30 billion, the conceit was very simple. They just had these massive funds. They could Wall Street was willing to fund massive debt packages in the tens of billions of dollars. And they were just simply putting a lot of leverage on a basically healthy business. And so Harrah's was an investment grade company, one of the rare ones in Las Vegas that owned a bunch of real estate. And because Apollo and TPG had raised massive funds and the debt markets would finance massive companies with private equity type leverage, they put together a deal to buy Caesar or Harrah's for almost $30 billion, putting just $6 billion down to it. Uh, so basically, 80% of the purchase price is funded with debt. And they're thinking, we bought this business. It's basically healthy. It's growing. Casinos are recession resistant. And there's basically no way we'll lose money here simply because the leverage is so massive that it's not conceivable that our profits won't be in the billions of dollars. And so that is the basic backdrop to this transaction and the other deals of this era, that these typical big public companies did not have private equity type capital structures, but the market was willing to finance those at this moment for the first time. So clearly we're going into the financial crisis and maybe it didn't turn out the way they'd hoped. What did the capital structure look like? So you had the 6 billion tranche of equity, there's 24 of debt. What were the layers of debt? Yeah. So 
there is two basic components of the capital structure. So if there's $24 billion of debt, there's one vehicle, which we'll call the Caesars or Harris Opco, where most of the casinos are, and that would raise $18 billion of traditional bank loans and then high-yield bonds. And there was also some pre-LBO Harris debt, which the covenants and the documents didn't call for it to be repaid. So all those bonds were unsecured. They were investment-grade bonds, so they were relatively low risk at the time. Since those didn't get refinanced, they were pushed to the bottom of the pile. So they went from very safe investment-grade bonds to at the bottom of an $18 billion capital structure in the so-called Harris Opco. And then there was a separate Propco financing, which at the time was described as a CMBS structure. It was ultimately not quite securitized. It was essentially a mortgage. And so rather than being financed by traditional cash flows, like in the Opco, where leverage is measured as a multiple of EBITDA, so it's whatever, six, seven, eight times EBITDA, Propco was based on a loan-to-value metric. And so that allowed for even more leverage. In fact, it was, as we recall, the, the debt markets were very hot in 2006. So you could put a massive amount of leverage. As we talk about in the book, there's this 14-month gap between signing and closing from December of 2006, essentially the peak of the market, to early 2008 when the financial crisis is just on the doorstep. And so there is a lot of agitation in the leveraged finance markets at the time. Many of these LBOs end up getting hung is the word, or the debt is uh, difficult to syndicate. And some of those deals got canceled and litigated or retraded. There was obviously, as we described in the book, some heartburn around getting the Caesars or the Harris deal done. It ultimately happens, but it is safe to say that the business plan that this called for and this deal was financed on in late 2006 suddenly looks very different by the time the deal closes in 2008. So the business isn't doing well, and you have Apollo and TPG who own the equity and obviously have a set of incentives to keep things going. So what happened from there? In between, I guess, that point in time, and ultimately, there's a bankruptcy proceeding a couple of years later. Yeah. So the deal closes in 2008, January of 2008, 14 months after being announced in late 2006. And so what's interesting about the 2009-2010 era is, obviously, the, the economy has collapsed. Vegas is not immune from the Great Recession. The convention business, which had been relatively stable obviously collapses with the collapse of Wall Street. Atlantic City is under siege. And so the business falls apart. But simultaneous with that, uh, and we all remember this, was there was a massive amount of liquidity injected into the economy by the Federal Reserve. Interest rates go basically to zero. And so there's all this money out there to refinance debt if you want to. And I mean, if the core business is in bad shape, there's this incredible firefighting effort from Apollo and TPG. And Apollo is a master of capital markets in these kinds of transactions. And so there's the usual debt exchanges, exchanging debt for a discount, refinancing debt, issuing new debt, pushing out maturities, all the stuff to just keep the option alive, kick the can down the road and hope for an operational turnaround. And so they do this in 2009, 2010, 2011, very kind of traditional so-called liability management transactions. But then there is this very fateful question, and this is something that confronts all sorts of private equity firms at the time, is do we actually want to put in, we the private equity firm, put in more money into this deal to provide a bridge? And that's always a fraught decision because capital, even these big firms, is constrained and you have partners who want money for their new deals and they don't want to throw good money after bad. But at the same time, if you feel good about a business, do you just put in more money to be that bridge to the actual operational turnaround. Maybe the most famous example of this is the Hilton transaction, which was a similar almost $30 billion LBO executed by Blackstone, obviously gets hammered by the financial crisis. And ultimately, there's a very tense restructuring of that business out of court. The creditors get beat up a little bit. They take a discount. Blackstone puts in a bunch of more money into the Hilton complex. And within a few years, the business snaps back and Blackstone goes on to make $14 billion or something like that. And it's arguably from a gross dollar value, the greatest private equity investment ever. And so that kind of decision confronts the owners of Harris, now Caesars, Apollo and TPG. Do we put in more money and how do we do that? And so that's where the story actually gets interesting. Apollo has this idea and TPG have this idea that we will put more money into this business, but we're going to not just put it into these existing Caesar structures, we're going to create new structures where we'll capitalize these vehicles, which will buy casinos and proper assets from the existing 
Harris and Caesars property or boxes, if you will, and that will give them the necessary liquidity. And these properties, which need a lot of capital, will go into these entities that are, for lack of a better phrase, bankruptcy remote. And so that starts like the most interesting portion of the story, which is Apollo and TPG executed a series of these complex asset deals, asset transfers, financial engineering, where more money is put in the business. They buy casinos from the existing Caesars and Harris Opco, all an attempt ostensibly to keep everybody's investment alive. The question is, what were the terms of those transactions? Apollo is sitting on and TPG are sitting on both sides of these deals. What's the corporate governance around them? What are the directors doing in these transactions? What are the bankers doing? What are the lawyers doing? And ultimately, those transactions, they do kick the can forward. But as we get into 2014, it's clearly not going to be enough to avoid some kind of reckoning, some kind of debt restructuring, either in court or out of court. And by this moment, amongst the various tranches of Caesar's debt, which is bank debt, senior bonds, junior bonds, unsecured bonds, those creditors are now the most sophisticated hedge funds in the world. And they're starting to think about how are they going to play against Apollo in this chess match. Well, Max, I want to turn it over to you now because it's not just a couple of pools of capital and some players in this particular case that show up. We had this capital structure. We know we have Apollo and TPG moving some assets around. Who else shows up for the dance and what happens from there? In distressed debt investing, corporate restructuring, what generally happens is distressed debt investing hedge funds take a position in a certain tranche of debt. And they will organize with other creditors in that same tranche of debt and form what are called ad hoc groups and then get legal counsel and financial advisors that then can concentrate on how to position themselves, A, with respect to the company and the company's financial advisors and legal advisors, and B, with respect to other creditors. And this is what really starts to happen in 2014. Some of these creditors have been in and out of the company's debt because it started trading at a discount almost immediately after the LBO. In 2009, they started doing distress exchanges. There's Oak Tree was uh, probably the, the main example of a large fund with multiple investments in Caesars from the very beginning. And by 2014, one of the, their largest position was in the second lien bonds. Another fund that is known for distressed investing is also California, Los Angeles-based fund. Canyon Capital Partners, a couple of Drexel alums run, run that fund as well. And they held a large position in the second lien bonds as well. And they start coordinating with Oak Tree uh, and at least just analyzing their position. They hired very fortuitously a law firm by the name of Jones Day, who's head of restructuring. It was a uh, you know, not only a great negotiator, but a very savvy litigator, which would become key later on in the case. And at this time, they've seen a lot of these assets go out the door in their minds. So Max, let me just make sure I understand where we are now. So we started with an operating company, an opco and a propco. And then through these series of transactions, there's new entities. And Apollo and TPG took some of the assets that were in the opco and capitalized those new entities and bought those assets at some transfer price. All along, there's a parent at top of the holding company that has a guarantee on all the debt that supports all of those businesses. I get that right? That's exactly right. Ostensibly, they're all connected. This is all one big organization working together. And that's when we arrive at early 2014, follow mainly Mark Rowan, along with his deputy and one of the, the, the key Apollo executives leading the case on this, David Samberg, start negotiating with some of the term loan lenders to perform a transaction called the B7. In the B7 term loan, essentially, at that point, there's term loan debt, and that sat at the top of capital structure at the OPCO. The credit documents allowed for additional senior debt to be raised. So at the time, they had you know, between like $1.75 to $2 billion of capacity to raise more first lien debt under the credit docs. But who's going to want to lend to this company that seems like it can't make its interest payments? And in order to do that, they start negotiating with a gentleman by the name of Ryan Mollett, who's the point person for the Caesars investment for the credit investing arm of Blackstone called GSO. And along with GSO, there's another firm, one of the hugest asset managers out there in BlackRock that also owns some of the term loan. And they offered them very, very generous fees, among other things, to participate in this transaction that accomplishes three things. One, 
it's going to give them some liquidity to refinance out some of their other debt. Two, it's going to remove the most onerous covenant that they have, essentially the only maintenance covenant that they have, which is the senior secured leverage ratio. And three, they're going to release the parent guarantee, something that <laughs> all the junior bondholders have been afraid of. And in order to do this, they needed to do several things at the same time. But first, they had to get a couple of commitments from GSO and from BlackRock, which I think they committed to about half of this $1.7 billion new financing, the B, the seventh tranche of this term loan. And they got something like $220 million in fees total for that transaction. It's very expensive. And the term loan owners, they agreed to a guarantee of collection. So they felt they still had a guarantee. So simultaneous to this transaction of this new term loan. How do the rules work in such a way that you've got a parent guarantee supporting call it $24 billion of debt, and you can issue a less than $2 billion tranche that wipes out that entire guarantee. The release of the guarantee is not just from the financing. There was a couple of things that happened. As a part of the financing of the B7, the company Caesars also sold stock in the Opco. So the Opco is 100% where the casinos are, is 100% wholly owned subsidiary of the parent. And so the guarantee can go away, according to the indentures, through three different conditions. One of those conditions is if the OPCO is no longer a wholly owned subsidiary. So if they sell 5% or some portion of the OPCO stock to third parties, the guarantee goes away. And so that is how the guarantee is ultimately released. There's this transaction to sell a portion of the stock to a set of hedge funds. But the problem with that transaction is obvious, right? The OPCO itself is deeply insolvent to this point. There is no equity value. The debt is all distressed, so therefore there's no equity value. And so this transaction to sell equity, whose purpose is to release this guarantee, it feels like a sham to the creditors. And in fact, the hedge funds that bought the stock in OPCO were all hedge funds who had debt positions who were benefiting for the release of that guarantee. And then if you look at the analysis from the investment bankers at Blackstone, which is the firm representing the Caesar's parent, they were saying there's no kind of traditional value here. It's all option value. It was all kind of smoke and mirrors. So, and your question is the right one. Ted, this all feels like kind of a sham. And ultimately, that's the view that the remaining creditors take, and it ends up being heavily litigated when we get to the bankruptcy. So Max, now we're going through the bankruptcy, and you're going to have two sides. You're going to have the equity holders, Apollo and TPG, saying, hey, there were no covenants. We followed through this covenant light documents. And the debt holders saying, you just stole all these assets from us. How does it play out? A couple steps before we get to the bankruptcy, because this was key, and there was several different ways that they tried to release the parent guarantee. And so before Caesars files for bankruptcy, this group of aggrieved hedge funds hires a smaller law firm, you known as Drinker Biddle at the time, now it's Fager Drinker Biddle, a lawyer by the name of Jim Millar. He has an argument that says that this violated a depression era, a law that governs securities known as the Trust Indenture Act. And this is essentially the sacred rights of all high-yield indentures, that everyone is guaranteed the right to payment plus interest at a certain maturity. And in order to amend those, you're going to need to get 100% of the creditors on board. And if you don't, then that's a violation there. He starts to get traction with this lawsuit right before they file. The Apollo and TPG, meanwhile, lock up just one tranche of creditors. And this is significant. And we hadn't quite gotten to who the so-called ally was for Apollo and Caesars going into bankruptcy, which is the holders of the first lien notes. So the first lien notes at this point fall just under the term loan in terms of priority. So the first lien notes now trading at a discount and could claim to be what we call the fulcrum security going into a bankruptcy, which is the first tranche of debt that is compromised or trading below par, what wouldn't be paid off in full. Who owned those first lien notes? And the biggest holder of those first lien notes was Elliott Management. And this investment was led by savvy investors as one of the heads of the distressed investor, Dave Miller. And he had been running a very tough negotiation with Apollo and struck a very, very tough deal because he knew that Apollo needed an ally really badly. And so he got all sorts of goodies, including a convertible preferred security, as well as one of these well-known secrets in the industry, get an agreement from Apollo to file for bankruptcy on a certain date so that his CDS position would pay off. 
where he'd taken up a CDS position that Caesars was going to file in the first half of 2015, even though they had enough liquidity to make it beyond that. That was the deal that was struck that led to this January 2015 bankruptcy filing. They couldn't quite get there with the term loan holders. There was a lot of drama, like the term loan holders saw this deal that Dave Miller and Elliot had gotten, and they were looking at that and saying, looks like they're going to get more than we are. We can't have, you know, we, we demand more cash payment. We don't want to take back paper if Apollo is going to be designing it. So they want all these goodies. They can't get to an agreement with them. Second liens are just at this point, they're way out of the game. They're trading at like 20 cents on the dollar. Company goes to file for bankruptcy. And at this point, because the second liens have been shunted from the negotiations, they have a plan to file an involuntary bankruptcy, which is very rare. They pushed that two days prior to the bankruptcy that Caesars is filing. And this all winds up in what we call like a split screen first day bankruptcy hearing where both hearings are going on at the same time, one in Chicago and one in Delaware. And we try to capture the drama of that day. And ultimately, the Delaware judge, which is a well-known judge that knew all the characters and the players and the lawyers, ultimately, he sided with the debtor. It was Caesar's choice to file in Chicago. They filed it in Chicago. They got a wild card judge. That kicked off one of the, if not the most exciting Chapter 11 bankruptcy that the restructuring world has ever seen. So, Sajit, take me back now. We've got this bankruptcy filed. There's a bunch of different people around the table. We got Apollo and TPG. We've got the term loan holders, GSO. We've got Elliott in the first liens. We've got Oak Tree in the second liens. What happens from here in the twists and turns of this case? What's fun about this world, and I think why we've written this book or why we think it deserves a book, is you, uh, as you pointed out, Ted, there's all these diverse players, and it's this complicated multi-party negotiation, and they're all playing their own chess match with each other and their allies one minute, adversaries the other, and you never know when a party's going to flip. And so the way to think about the seizures case is there's these two competing forces. The typical chapter 11 restructuring is about reorganizing the company as quickly as possible, reducing debt and minimizing the stay in bankruptcy so you can get out of bankruptcy and just shed debt and avoid all the high costs of lawyers, which long drawn out cases often are about. And so there's this effort by Apollo who obviously is the junior claim holder in the Caesars capital structure, being the equity holder. They are junior, but they control the situation because it's their company, they own it. And so they try to exploit that advantage by trying to come up with a plan to restructure the company, sign up as many creditors as they can. They go into bankruptcy with this deal with Elliott. They quite very quickly get a deal with the GSO group. And that is supposed to create all kinds of pressure on the most junior debt holder, which is the Oak Tree, Appaloosa, secondly, Bonholder group. And so even if Apollo is most junior, they're taking control of this case because they control the company and their restructuring plan has them staying in control because they're going to put in new money into the reorganized Caesars to buy it cheaply. And so if you're uh, you're in the Oak Tree, Appaloosa group, the junior second lien bondholder group, you're about to be what's known as like crammed down, which means you're just going to get run over. Everyone else is going to sign up a deal and cooperate and impose this horrible restructuring on you where you get essentially wiped out. And again, Apollo is going to do well here because they're putting in new money to capitalize the new business and they stay in control and they're ultimately going to have all the upside of the new Caesars. And so that's one path here. The other type of bankruptcy, and if we think about cases like Purdue Pharma or PG&E, which are high profile recent cases, those bankruptcies are about resolving a mass tort or some kind of like massive wrongdoing. In the case of PG&E, it's wildfire victims in California. In the case of Purdue Pharma, it's opioid victims and communities who have been hurt by the opioid crisis. And so those bankruptcies are about finding the value of these claims and these wrongdoings and these torts, and then settling those through the bankruptcy process in an efficient way. And so the tension in Caesars is around this traditional corporate restructuring, reducing debt and getting out quickly versus resolving a mass tort. But the mass tort in the case of Caesars is the accusation of fraudulent conveyance in these transactions where many of the top properties of the Caesars Opco ended up in these affiliated entities where Apollo owned them and they were out of the hands of the creditors. And so again, Apollo signs up these senior creditors to uh, restructurings which are attractive. There's enough money in Caesars at this point where you can pay those guys off at 115 cents essentially. And so you've got this then the ultimate battle royale in the case, which is this fight between Apollo on one side and then Oak Tree Appaloosa on the other over the same pot of money. And again, it's over the idea of 
are we going to actually figure out if there was a mass tort here and if there are billions of dollars of fraudulent conveyance claims? Uh, or is the judge going to say, you know what, we've got a good deal on the table. We don't have time to drag this out. We're just going to impose some kind of 10 or 15 cent recovery on these junior creditors, and then we're going to all move on in life. So that is the main tension of this bankruptcy case, that fight between restructuring this company quickly against figuring out was there actual wrongdoing before the bankruptcy. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And 1, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. NetSuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. So in this case, you've got huge, well-resourced players on both sides, right? You've got Apollo, TPG on one side. You've got Oak Tree, as you said, Appaloosa comes in on the other side. I'm curious as this goes through, and let's take a step back from this restructuring, generally look at all restructurings. How much does the size and the power of the individual players make a difference in the outcomes? That's an interesting question. I think you have to look at cases that are either in Chapter 11, which is a formal bankruptcy, and those cases that are not. And so that kind of balance of power, I think, makes a big difference when you're trying to do something out of court and avoid a bankruptcy filing where large players take big stakes in, in capital structures. And because they have big stakes, it's easier to negotiate with counterparties on the other side of the table and also then impose your will on smaller players. So if you think about what I think are the two most important players in, in the distressed debt world, those are, in my view, Elliot uh, and Appaloosa, both of whom are key players in Caesars, uh, although in different parts of the capital structure. What they both those firms do is they take massive positions in particular securities, and then they develop a very strong point of view. And they have a lot of conviction. And when those two firms take a position, everybody knows that it's going to be very difficult, if not painful, if they're going to actually fight with those guys. So size, I think, definitely does matter. And I think in the time since Caesars, more and more, these handful of firms are dominating the space and they're dominating because they have bigger and bigger funds and they're taking bigger and bigger positions. But the wild card is when you actually are in bankruptcy, things change a little bit in terms of the power dynamic because there is now a judge who's overseeing the entire case. And that judge not only cares about size, he cares about the equities of the case and applying the law. And so one of the the twists in Caesars is that there are a series of small players in this land of giants of Elliott and Appaloosa and Oak Tree and Silverpoint and Blackstone and others, where they are able to use the levers of a formal bankruptcy process, including judicial hearings and a judge, to actually exercise their own form of power through what they think is the proper application of the law. We're in the case, we've got these big guys fighting against each other. And Max, why don't you rip through the highlights here of what the twists and turns are and where it ends up? The case starts off with the, like I guess the second lane is trading at 10, 15, 20 cents on the dollar. First lane bonds trading, let's say 75, 80, and then the term loans around 90. Throughout the course of the case, there's, like Judas mentioned, a lot of pressure around whether or not they're going to allow these lawsuits to go forward or not. And ultimately, an injunction is put in place and up until the threat of it being lifted forces everyone to come to the table for certain negotiations. Meanwhile, the company is improving uh, without paying $2 billion in interest. They're able to invest in new renovations for the casinos, capital expenditures to make improvements that then start bringing the business back, the economy starts picking up. And so over time, the actual results are improving. So this debt starts ticking up in the secondary and they're constantly 
just 10 cents apart between Apollo's offer to the second liens and what the second liens actually want. The most important thing that happened in the case was the examiner's report. We joke that he's our third co-author. Richard Davis, a former Watergate prosecutor, chosen as an examiner at the beginning of the case and gets deep access, interviews you know, 75 different people who are designing and behind these transactions, goes through millions of documents with a team of advisors and ultimately comes out with an 1,800-page report that does say Indeed, there's about $5 billion worth of potential claims against Caesars, Caesars executives, and the private equity executives who are behind it. And not only the firms, but potentially holding the people who are involved with it personally liable. And that, while it's not legally binding, is a watershed moment in case. It influences how the judge sees the case. Ultimately, the judge permits this motion by the second lien's attorney seeking the disclosure of the personal financials for the Caesars executives and the private equity executives involved, including Mark Rowan and David Samper from Apollo, David Bonderman from TPG, and Gary Loveman from Caesars. And that's that's enough to put pressure on those parties, along with all the other things that were going on, to come to a deal. And ultimately, both the prologue of our book and then the scene later on where there's a resolution, the main parties come into a room at Kirkland and Ellis's law firm. They start shouting at each other about trying to just basically bridge a $130 million gap. I would add that this stranger than fiction tale where the interactive gaming business that is just kind of chugging along wasn't even allowed to pursue online gambling and just wound up being sort of a not for gambling poker game on your cell phone with the World Series of Poker brand winds up becoming a $4 billion business sold to a Chinese conglomerate that gives Caesars this huge pile of cash to then settle the case. That comes in and it, it allows them to bridge the gap without Apollo losing more than it had put in, in it of its initial investment. But ultimately, with all that was hanging over them, they agreed that they would give up all of their initial equity investment, which is what Appaloosa and Oak Tree and the second lane creditors were demanding, not just for the profit, but in their eyes for justice. They get to this settlement number, are able to bridge the gap, and it's made a lot of people a lot of money. You're talking about there was a 66 cent settlement for the second liens, but that came with equity options that ultimately took that above par. For the first liens, they were paid out at par plus these convertible preferred that brought that well above par. The term loan debt got everything that they had wanted, par plus accrued for the entirety of the case, which is what they were asking for from the beginning with a decent amount of that being in, in cash. And it's an enormous success for the distressed debt investing world. And while it was a huge loss for Apollo and TPG, their reputations of being able to fight for their LPs allowed them to immediately after the conclusion of the bankruptcy and the confirmation in 2017, two years later, they raised the largest private equity fund ever up to that time. That's a great place to I, I jump off there is, you know, what were some of the lessons you know, for investors in private equity and in hedge funds in those investment vehicles learned from this case? Yeah. I mean, it's an amazing story. And somehow, as I told you guys, somehow it's eminently readable despite the technical nature of it. Let's dive into some of those questions about what this means in the scheme of things. And so let's start with the process itself. And there's this question of what are the rules in these games? So in distressed investing, there's legally what you can do. And you can think about that now where there's no covenants. And then there's this question of what's the right thing to do, etiquette. If you're playing tennis with someone and there's a ball on the court, you pick it up. It seems like some of these players just play by different rules. How does that play out less so much necessarily in Caesars, but broadly in the distressed business? Yeah. So one thing that I think is an interesting change in the norms and conventions of this world is that we'll just start with the most basic one. There was a time if you were a private equity firm and your investment went south and in trouble and your equity was worthless and it wasn't close to having a chance to ever be recovered, you would just very kindly, very politely just hand over the keys to the creditors and tell them, good luck to you, we wish you well. And you would tell your own LPs that this is the risk of private equity. We invest a dollar, we can lose a dollar, but the reality is often we're going to turn $1 into $2 or $3 into $4. And so if we do that enough times, it doesn't matter if every so often we lose $1 on a $1 investment. Now the attitude is that 
these documents over the last decade plus are very loose. They give us all this flexibility to keep kicking the can so we can keep doing various liability management transactions to keep the option alive and we don't have to mark down the investment and we can hope that we strike gold or there's a lightning strike down the road and on occasion that happens. But that has also led to an erosion, as you say, of the kind of norms of what you could and should do with counterparties, uh, in this case, creditors. And creditors now have made their own debt. They have lent companies with these loose documents and they have gone into these transactions eyes open. And so we talk about in the seizures case, there was all this novel financial engineering and aggressive corporate governance. And we end the book in the epilogue saying seizures ended up being less of a cautionary tale and more of a, a roadmap. And the reason for that, I think, is very simple. People realize that after this deal, Apollo raises a $25 billion fund and the LP community didn't really penalize them. And maybe if they can face modest consequences for what was uh, apparently aggressive behavior in the seizures case, maybe if we TPG can be aggressive in J. Crew, which is another high profile transaction since, or Neiman Marcus, where you have private equity owners and some very aggressive financial engineering. And so between the kind of breakdown in traditional decorum and loose documents, there really is an attitude now of behaving as aggressively as possible. There is the sense that the, the, the courts and other gatekeepers have had a difficult time keeping up with the innovation and the attitudes and behavior in this world. The reality is there isn't great traditional distressed debt investing opportunities at the moment because there's so much liquidity in the market and companies that probably deserve to go under are able to kick the can and avoid reckonings, whereas the traditional bankrupt company of late has been a bad company in a bad capital structure, which has led to these really brutal and seeming pointless legal fights. So Max, in these situations, the LPs might want to reward an Apollo and a TPG for being aggressive, but I don't quite understand why if you're, let's say, a GSO or a BlackRock, who are lending and are at risk of that aggressive behavior, you wouldn't find a way to increase the cost of capital to those private equity firms relative to others that might not take such a hard line. So how does, how does that play out in the markets over time? You hit the nail on the head. It's really difficult to impose your will as a creditor in these markets because of the proliferation of CLO funds and capital going towards leveraged loans has exploded. So there's so much demand for leveraged loans because of CLO funds and then the increasing amount of high yield funds that are also looking for bond debt that these more sophisticated investors or someone who would, who would know or has the lawyers to negotiate for better documents can't do it. They're all very loose. They're all covenant light and there's increasing loopholes. Even in post pandemic right now, we're seeing companies that are pretending like 2020 never happened. <laughs> And just using 2019 EBITDA as a gauge for where their their actual leverage is going to be going forward, and they're able to raise debt. And so it's very difficult in that environment, even though you know what's coming, to have negotiating leverage uh, with a leverage loan or a bond issuer. So we'll see these funds that are looking for maybe smaller privately negotiated loans. The ESG factors, anything that maybe is non-ESG, they'll go off the run, provide a huge loan to a cannabis-oriented business, or start investing some side pockets into SPAC deals and playing some sort of SPAC arbitrage, depending on how flexible their fund is. Even though they know it's coming, they can't do anything about asking for stricter documentation because somebody else is going to fund it. With all the twists and turns coming into and then through the bankruptcy, how do you think about skill versus luck of each of the participants along the way? I guess luck favors the prepared in these cases, and it's a combination of both. That's why they call them hedge funds. They're going to have multiple bets. They'll put money towards as much like asymmetric risk reward deals as they can. And if they have success, they'll continue to try it. Just like Dave Miller, a home run with this incredibly innovative convertible preferred instrument. They, he just slipped into the RSA and continued to get like re-upped as the Caesars case went on, it probably made Elliott nine figures. They looked for similar types of deals later on, I think in Claire's and elsewhere, and it wasn't the same. It's more difficult to continue to do. I think that it's that level of sophistication and putting a weighting on how likely these legal claims are to be successful and then having the conviction to go with that. It's going to be a combination of the two. But ultimately, I think a fund like David Tepper, you're going to have someone who is not only lucky and skilled, but is unflappable. 
And I think that's where a lot of distressed investing gains probably a good reputation for being able to not show fear at these times when there's an incredible uncertainty, if they feel they really know the market. And that's what happened here. It feels like a lot of the stress debt, you expect it to be some type of skill. So it's David Tepper's temperament to be able to fight to the end. Where does luck come into play in this market? Yeah. So there's the expression, you'd rather be lucky than good. I think the real question is, you'd rather be lucky and good. And then there's the question, can you make your own luck? And so one of the reasons, honestly, there is a book about this case is because there are all these really oddball, serendipitous moments. There's a judge in this case who is very untraditional. He's not inexperienced in big cases. So he gives the lawyers for the creditors usually wide berth. There's this weird lawsuit about the guarantee, which kind of hovers over the case. And if there's an appeal in that that comes on, that doesn't come until the very end of the case. And that, if it had come any day earlier, would have changed the outcome. There's this mobile gaming asset that now is worth $4 billion in this case, which creates enough money to figure it out. You cannot overlook how much, not just luck, but just randomness plays uh, into this world, particularly when it is so much legally based. I'm just guessing what a judge is going to do. And you never know how a judge is going to feel about a certain issue on a certain day. As Max said, it is about trying to hedge your bets and doing as much analysis as you can. And if you look at distressed debt returns, they're uneven and they're not great over time. If you look at the firms that either were successful in Caesars or just more generally think as dominant players in this world, they definitely had rough goes of it. They've had big losses in other cases. And this is a profession where the people don't sleep well and they're always just one step away from disaster. I mean, there's all these traditional long only buyers of debt, whether it's loans or bonds, who bought Caesars paper along the way, starting in 2007 and 2008. And they ultimately sold their paper for huge losses. And they sold it to the likes of Elliot and Appaloosa, who do well at the end of this case. But all those players who are, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, victims in Caesars, they don't benefit from all this good fortune at the end. So everyone's always a step away from disaster here. And the thoughtful players in this world acknowledge that. As you're both viewing this and reporting on it, there's a whole nother side, which is the investors in these funds, the LPs, who are outside of all the machinations of this happening. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on how should an LP view this with all these people battling each other in some form of zero-sum game? One of the funds investing in Caesars has this quote, they like to say that structure determines behavior. I like that in terms of no one is all bad or all good. I don't personally think like there's anyone that inherently is out there to take advantage of their fellow man for the sake of it. But the incentives are there. And LPs, at the end of the day, if someone is making them money consistently, are going to continue to give those funds money. And somebody's going to. There's no question about it. No matter what amount of, of bad behavior there may be, if that doesn't affect a fund's performance, I've never seen that fund struggle too terribly much. And so until that incentive structure changes, there's going to be no major incentive to be any less hardball. Uh, and I would say the one the one exception is, is, you know, when there's there's going to be criminal laws that are broken that implicate the heads of fund. But even so. Someone could step into their shoes if there there is something like that, if that fund continues to perform. I'm very curious to see if there's a way that that, that evolves. Either there's some sort of collective trade association that incentivizes better behavior. I listen to a lot of fund managers. They are designing these things to have incentives to be not only profitable, but to be socially conscious and environmentally conscious. That would be great to see. And then some type of regulatory shift. Recently, there was a fund manager who was prosecuted and is going to prison for six months for a criminal infraction in a bankruptcy case. It kind of shocked everyone because of how rare that was. So if there's more examples to be made of people and a regulatory shift in that direction, it would be interesting to see what types of incentives that creates for, for LPs to keep their money with the most aggressive investors here. So Max, along those lines, when you sent me a copy of the book, you had written in the inscription, I wonder if this story will figure into how money managers allocate capital one day. And I was wondering what you meant by that. 
if you read this and you see how the sausage is made, are you not going to want to invest the sausage factory? And I'd be curious. I would love to see like, oh, okay, if there's pension funds and they were considering a huge allocation to any one of these funds involved and they liked or didn't like how these people were acting behind the scenes, I'd be curious to see if that is a factor. I know that they're very thoughtful about who they do ultimately give their money to. Well, I do want to ask you both a couple of closing questions. I have a bunch of them, and so maybe we'll just go back and forth. You guys can choose who's going to answer it. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? So I'm a big runner, and I got into ultramarathon running while I (laughs) was also helping build up Reorg. And they really went hand in hand because for me as a journalist, you don't necessarily have to be that good or skilled just as long as you're able to persist (laughs) over time and endurance and mental toughness. So that's been something that I've had as a hobby and finished a hundred mile race four different times. I I would say between that and finishing this book, that was a lot easier. Here's one for both of you. And Sajid, why don't you take it first? Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? So I'll start with my dad. And that's a little bit cliche to answer, but I'll explain actually what I mean. I had a career in finance before I became a journalist, and I had this like deep love of reading and curiosity about the world, and actually just the news. Uh, and I think I get that from my dad because he himself was an avid news reader. We had all sorts of newspapers and weekly magazines in our house, and I guess I became this kind of news junkie. And so I had this job now where I'm doing what I would be doing even if I wasn't in this profession, which is reading the news and picking up every scrap of information I can. And now that's my job to do that. I read a lot. I talk to interesting people and I write a little bit. What could be better as a career? The second person I would name is a vice president I worked with when I was an analyst in investment banking at Merrill Lynch, which was my first job out of college. And this person was really, really smart and showed me that a job just couldn't be just a job that you could find a way to pursue intellectual curiosity and just constantly be learning. And I think many people will view a job as just something like a series of tasks rather than something to to be passionate about. And so that uh, in its own way, I think inspired me to do a job where I'm doing what I I love to do and something I can be excited about. Max? So, you know, I had a sordid career before, like a little bit before journalism where I got fired from a marketing job and then I was like selling used cars to try to make ends meet. And my boss was was this Guadalajaran immigrant who was just this outsized personality who was such a ball buster. And he would like (laughs) come in and like yell at people for no reason. I just remember him (laughs) being incredibly tough on us. He only spoke to us in Spanish and he was like, Max. It was a, a lot of pressure. And I, I've never had a worse experience in my life, but for some reason, it was just being able to get through it made me able to kind of tough out a lot of different situations that I think journalism ultimately threw at me. And then I'd say the person who hired me away from him gave me my first journalism job, Michelle, the executive editor at Crittenden Research, just kind of plucked me out of there and gave me a job as a copy editor and said, go give it a shot. All right, great. One more. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Sajit, why don't you go ahead? As you're growing up, you think about collecting credentials and doing as well as you can in school and going to the right schools and colleges and getting the right job and resume building that often is seen in elite circles. And obviously now I write about people who are in finance who have fancy credentials and that's something that the currency in this world. But being successful, being good at your job and respected is important, but it cannot be one's sole focus. I think one, you have to be humble and curious and have to accept things you don't know and always be wanting to learn and not resting on your laurels. And two, learning from other people you may not may not have uh, necessarily impressive credentials on paper, but in fact have personal habits and characteristics that one can learn from. And just the idea that you just constantly have to be learning and growing and be humble about what you do and don't know and always trying to get better no matter whatever you think you may have accomplished or whatever station in life you may have been. I would say that you could lead a lot more fulfilling life being of service to others instead of yourself. 
that's something that I, I don't know, it was not top of my mind earlier in my career. And, and maybe that's by design. You're just younger and you need to be a little bit more self-involved. But later on, it's just, I find to be more fulfilling, to be part of teams, to help others and see others succeed, and to make that a goal in terms of how you find fulfillment in life. Well, guys, this is an amazing story and I really enjoyed the book. I hope everyone got a chance to read it. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks so much, Ted, for having us. Thanks for having me, Ted. This was great. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show and I thank you for it. Have a good one and see you next time. 